invite you guys to open up your Bibles to Psalm 22. If you guys will stand in honor of reading of God's Word. We're only going to be reading the last section of this chapter. Starting off in verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the uh, prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the ones who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to, all, or to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You guys may be seated. When I begin introduce myself, I have the joy of speaking for the first time. I've been here for a little bit since October. Um, many of you know me not from the church side, but also teach here in the academy. So I've been here for several years, so I know most of your kids, but I'm getting to know uh, many of you uh, week to week as, as we gather together, whether it be in community group or here on Sunday mornings. Um, so it is a joy to serve uh, in this church. I'm thankful for the privilege. I'm also thankful Pastor Perry has allowed me this opportunity this week just to dive into God's Word with you guys. It's a joy. I want to begin by talking about a man named Charles Spurgeon. An incredible pastor, Baptist pastor from London. He pastored a church known as the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He pastored several churches along the way. But this man is considered a hero of the faith by many. Uh, Everything he put his hands on seemed to prosper and do well. He was involved, uh, he wrote commentaries, he wrote books, he preached through books. He ran a seminary in college out of his congregation. He ran an orphanage, provided clothes for those who were homeless. He also ran a nursing home out of his congregation as well. Basically, all of London was blessed because of Charles Spurgeon's ministry. Another thing that seems wild about his ministry, and as you start studying these things, he catechized children in his home on a regular basis. He started preaching to congregations, and the numbers kept multiplying and multiplying. At one point, Charles Spurgeon preached to 24,000 people. Now, at first you may think that's amazing, but it gets even more amazing when you realize he didn't even have microphones. So 24,000 people with no microphones. His story gets even more mythological, if you want to think of it that way. Well, one Sunday morning when he's getting ready to preach to a large congregation, he's warming up his vocal cords, as you would have to when you're preaching to that large of a congregation. He's warming up in his his vocal cords, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. She yells that out. And a man in a room next to the auditorium that he was warming up his vocal cords comes in and says... Mr. Spurgeon, how can I know this man who takes away sins of the world? I mean, 
Who leads a man to Christ warming up your voice? Like everything about the man seems wild. And adding to it, to add to the craziness, at one point, or it's said of his ministry that he was home by 6 p.m. every single day. He wrote on average 400 letters a week to members in his congregation. Pastor Perry, you need to step up your game. I mean, how this is possible, I don't even know. He seems more like a robot than a person. This is before computers, so you couldn't print these bad boys off and just sign your name to them. These are handwritten letters. There's a whole book of them. If you ever get a chance to read through it, it's phenomenal. But although this man was an incredible hero of the faith, although everything around him seems to prosper, he was not a man who did not know sorrow. He is not a man who did not know pain. Let me give an example. Shortly after his anniversary, or I'm sorry, shortly before his one-year anniversary to his wife, whose name was Susie, on October 19, 1856, he was preaching at, to a congregation. He constantly was transitioning from building to building because um, in this transition part, the very first Sunday he preached in one of his congregations, the congregation was already too big for the building, so they had to start building another congregation or another building. So he's in the transition. On October 19, 1856, he is preaching in a place called the Surrey Gardens Music Hall. And he's preaching to this congregation, and shortly, and this is around 10,000 people who are in here. Shortly after the service begins, he is up on stage. And two young people, we're not really told who it is, screams fire twice. All of a sudden, there is a panic, and everyone storms out of this congregation. And it's told to us, as a result of this, there are over 30 people who were seriously injured. Seven people died. From this moment on, Spurgeon struggles with depression. He, many people thought that he actually died for the first short period of time after this. It was reported in one newspaper that he did. He passed out as a result of this. Then he goes home. He's in spiritual, a state of spiritual depression, feel, feeling like it was his fault these people died. It was because of his popularity that they were there. He was there preaching, and then someone did that, and no one could get out, and it was his fault that they died. He wrestled with that. Where did he find peace, though? Where was it that he found peace? One of uh, Charles Spurgeon's close friends describes how difficult this was for him. His name is William Williams. Listen to what he says. Spurgeon comparatively... Or, compared this to an early death. He said it might be better in some measure due to the furnace of mental suffering he endured after that fearful night. So Spurgeon himself compared this to an early death. So where did he find peace? Did he find peace? Let me make this a little bit more personal. I mean, it's easy to think about a figure like that who's a hero of the faith and think, you know, he lived a long time ago. That wouldn't happen here. But let's tie this and bring this to our current situation as well. 
What do we do with everything that we hear on the news? Everything going on in the Ukraine. Mr. Ammons brought up this morning in his prayer. Where do we find peace in the midst of that? Where are those people living in Russia and living in Ukraine when this whole battle is going on? Where do they find rest? Where do they go to when everything around them seems to be falling apart? Or let's bring it and make it a little more personal right now. Maybe you're having marriage problems and you're crying out to the Lord, Lord, please work this out. Fix what is that ever that is going on. Or maybe you have that rebellious child that you're longing to see them come to Christ and you're saying, when am I going to find peace in the midst of this? Maybe you're suffering with depression or anxiety and you're wondering, where, God? How long will I wrestle with this? Well, Charles Spurgeon He found peace and rest through meditating upon the Psalms, just working through them. He wrote an entire commentary series, it's three volumes, called The Treasury of David. And it's just him literally working through the Psalms and wrestling with these things in his his heart, and this is where he finds peace. Today, as we dive into Psalm 22, I think we're going to find rest from our despairs as well. If you're taking notes and you like three points, which I, I've come to the conclusion that there's only three points in sermons. So, changing the way I preach, three points is the way to go. First uh, 11 verses, so 1 through 11, separation from God. 12 through 25 is death the great enemy. And then point number three, fellowship restored through resurrection. And that's going to be verses 26 through 31. So let's dive into the separation of God. Verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? For your words, or for the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry day, or cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. David begins the psalm expressing some of the strongest words of anguish in all of Scripture. He is going through a situation which is the worst situation he has ever gone through, clearly by the words. He feels abandoned by God. We know that Jesus recites the same phrase during his darkest hour when he is on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We aren't told exactly what David is going through. Some scholars have speculated that it's possible that David is going through the situation where Saul is pursuing him, trying to to kill him, or maybe it's his own son, Aslam. Aslam, at one point, is trying to pursue and kill him as well. It could be that. It also, it could be that David is wrestling with some type of sin situation. Maybe it's with him and Bathsheba and then with the situation with Uriah. We don't really know. And that's kind of encouraging. The reason being is we can place ourselves in the same situation. We can place our problems in this. We aren't really told the why. 
But let's think about this for a moment. Have you ever felt like God is far away? Have you ever felt like when you pray, you are praying and your prayers are simply just hitting the ceiling and not going past that? When, God, will you answer my prayer? When will you help me in the midst of this thing? I'm reminded by this, this phrase here, this anguish here that he's going through. And I'm reminded of the prophet Jeremiah. He's called to go and tell Israel to repent of their sins. And if they do not, then there is going to be coming destruction. And that destruction is certain. They're going to be kicked out of the land. And then they're going to have Assyria come in and destroy the north. And that's what the book of Jeremiah is about. Well, the book of Lamentations is the afterword. He writes this letter where he is wrestling through and he's struggling through. He saw his entire country destroyed. Women and children killed. And he's looking at the land that he previously loved and he sees that it's destroyed. And this is what he says. This is where he finds hope in the midst of those situations. This is the anguish that he goes through. Lamentations 3, 21 and 23. But this I will call to mind. So this is what he's going to remember. When all those difficult trials are coming along, when everything seems to be in crumbles, when nothing makes sense in the world, when I look around and see it's all falling apart, this is what I call to mind. This is an incredible passage, by the way. It's one of my favorite in all of Scripture. Highly encourage you, like, write this on your heart, write it on your mirror in your bathroom so that every morning you wake up and you see this, tattoo it on your arms. If you're a minor, do something like a henna tattoo, like semi-permanent. This one, write it down. This is what he says. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So in the midst of destruction and crumbles, he says, even though everything seems like it's falling apart, I'm setting my mind on this, and therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. That is our hope as well. Listen to how David responds. Now back to our passage in this situation. Yet you are holy, enthroned on praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put ashamed. David describes Yahweh as being enthroned on the praises of Israel. Literally, he sits upon them on the worship and the celebrations. As we sing songs today, he is enthroned upon our praise. Rather than pointing the finger, the accusatory finger at the Lord and saying, Lord, because I'm in this situation, it's your fault. It's not what he does. He says, no. In the midst of these things, I'm going to be reminded of the fact that God is holy. God is worthy of our praise. 
The great Puritan Richard Sibbs, if you ever get a chance to read his work, The Bruise Read and The Smoking Flax or Flux, depending on which English version you have, he says this, it's a phenomenal book, he says this in it. The sun shines as clearly in the darkest days as it does in the brightest. The difference is not the sun, but in some clouds which hinder the manifestation of the light thereof. So in our darkest hours, the sun's still there. The clouds are just blocking us from seeing it. So in our darkest hours, he is still worthy of praise. Those clouds, they're not going to last long. Winter may seem like it's everywhere, but it can't stop the spring from coming. Light will shine in the midst of darkness. Notice also what David says here. He brings up this threefold usage that he's going to trust the Lord. He's going to trust the Lord. He brings up this trust numerous times. God, I will put my trust in you because I know you rescued the Egyptians, or the Israelites in the story of the Exodus from the Egyptians. I know you rescued Rahab in the battle of Jericho. Now David's saying, once again, God, I'm trusting. I know that you're God, the great Redeemer. Save us. Save me again, your anointed one. So even when it seems dark and cold, you worship a God who is constantly a great redeemer. Verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and by, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. They mock David. David, we see your situation. We recognize you're going through a terrible situation. We recognize that what you're going through seems terrible. Let your God deliver you. If he's really a God, we, we want to look and see him do this. They mock him. Isaiah 53 picks up the same language when talking about the suffering servant, the one who's going to come and be pierced for our transgressions and be crushed for our iniquities. They mock him. They scorn him. They despise him. Ultimately, know this is leading us to Jesus, right? These people mocking David, King David, trust the Lord. He knows that God's going to rescue him. His rightful recognition here in verse 6 is what's going to lead him to worship. He says, I am but a worm. This is not a humble brag by David. He's not saying, you know, like trying to make it look like he's really great by calling him something that he's not. No, this is rightful recognition of his state before God. He's already said God is holy. He is set apart. Well, in light of that, in light of his situations, David is but a worm. He is nothing before God. He deserves nothing in this situation. He has not done anything to warrant the favor or the rescue of God. This is an amazing place to be as a believer. Why? Because it leads us to worship. It leads us to recognize that in the midst of my pain and sorrow, I can't work my way out of that. 
There's nothing good in me that's going to rescue me or call on God to bring me out of the situation. When I recognize my state before God, I realize my only good is in Jesus. My only hope in the midst of this is not that I can pull up my bootstraps and work harder and get out of it. I can't fix this. Only Jesus can. And that leads me to worship. How great is the God that I serve? How great is the one who delivers me out of this? So then I go back to worship over and over again. Now David is going to model for us how to depend on God in the midst of these things. So in the midst of your trials, what are we called to do? Here it is. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Notice all the you's in this section. You took me from the womb. You made me trust in my mother's breast, or trust at my brother's breast. On you I cast, or I was cast on my birth. David describes God like this. He's like, he is basically a midwife who delivers me and then all of a sudden takes me into safety into my mother's arms. He rescues me. He pulls me out of despair. He cares for me. David is saying in this, I am weak and helpless like a little baby. And yet my God is the one who cares for me from beginning to end. Brothers, sisters, just as David recognized his helplessness before God and his need for God to, rec- to rescue him, he said there is hope nowhere else. Have you wrestled through your trials and thought about in the midst of your trials, that is where your redemption is going to come from? That is where your deliverance is going to come from? David's hope is the same thing as your hope. And my hope, God is the one who's going to rescue us. Because if I'm able to pull myself out of it, I'm not going to praise God in that because I earned it. I did it. But when I see God as the great redeemer, the great deliverer, and I realize I've got nowhere else to go, how beautiful and how sweet is King Jesus. Hope in the midst of your trials or darkness doesn't come from strength. It comes from surrender. Let me say that one more time for you. Hope in the midst of your despair and struggles doesn't come from strength. It comes from surrender. So in the midst of your trials, when you're struggling and you're wondering, how long, oh God, how long will you do this? And how long will this be going on in my life? The response and the answer to this is you preach to yourself just like David has. God, you've done this over and over again in the past. Do it again. Save me just like you did Abraham and you just like you did the Israelites in Egypt and just like you did Rahab. Save me again. Recite these things to yourself. Preach to yourself rather than listen to yourself. That's where true hope comes. 
Now David's going to tell us about the suffering. This is going to be point two for us, the death of the great enemy. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay, you lay me in the midst of dust and death, for dogs encompass me, and a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Once again, we're seeing how this ultimately is going to bridge the gap and lead us to Jesus. Beautiful picture here. I count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among me, or among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, some are come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. David describes the situation that he's going through, like his enemies surround him, and he gives all these different animals and all these strong animals surrounding him. You have bulls that are surrounding him. You have hungry lions waiting to attack him. And then he goes so far as to say that he is at the point of death. They cast, lows for, for, they cast lots for his clothes, so they strip him of his clothes, and then he is there, and they scatter his bones. He experiences a death. But this is where David is going to find hope. This is where the joy comes in. This is where the excitement and the beauty comes in because he says, even though I am dead, even though they take everything from me and I'm left with nothing, here's where salvation comes in. It is through death. Cries to the Lord, deliver him. He says, all the offspring of David are going to celebrate in this situation, it seems as if Satan has won the battle, right? God's anointed king. Ultimately, this is going to be where Jesus comes from. From this line is surrounded. They've ripped off his clothes. It's to the point where he is going to be dead. And it appears as if Satan has won. Over and over again, we have stories like this in Scripture. Adam and Eve are promised one day that someone from the line of Eve is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Cain then kills Abel. And you ask, God, where is our Savior going to come from? It's not going to come from Cain, is it? And then God provides Seth. Out of the death, he brings life. Over and over again, Jesus goes to the cross and you're thinking, it's over. Our hope is gone. The Messiah, he was literally put to death. And then God raised him magnificently to victory. Guys, the hope, our joy in this passage is that even though we experience pains of death and our sorrows are real and it seems as if Satan has won the battle, resurrection tells us another story. And therefore, even in the midst of pain, like Jeremiah says, yet I will hope.
No matter what your trials are with your marriage, with your kids, with whatever difficulty you're going through, we can set our eyes on this, that even when it seems like death is near and death is certain, we serve a God who has defeated death. Let's go to the vinyl point and we'll finish off here. Fellowship restored through resurrection. I will tell you your, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the offspring of Jacob glorify him and stand in awe of him. All of the offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the afflictions of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from them. But he has heard when he cried to him. For he... For from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I'll perform before those who fear him. He cries out to the Lord in the midst of his pain. David's dead body will be raised up. His defeat will result in his victorious resurrection. He then says the congregation will rejoice and praise him. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him. Shall bow who uh, shall all bow who ah, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the ones who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations, and they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Because of this great resurrection work. David tells us that the nations are going to come and celebrate. Everyone will sing praises to the God who has delivered David out of this great situation. Songs of victory from Abraham will come from his people. God is the great victor. He is the great hero. The story about David ultimately finds its rest in Jesus on the cross. We see he is going to cry out in great anguish. We see that his clothes are going to be taken from him and they're going to cast lots for him. We see he is going to be put to death for our sins. But the hope in this passage is our hope as well. How do you and I play into this story? Our hope is that in the midst of the darkest hours of our lives, in the most difficulties and problems that we face, that we too will experience resurrection. Our hope is in the Christ who crushed and defeated death. Here's how this plays out in your life and my life as we tie this thing together. Your problems, they may not go away. Your difficulties, they may not go away. The good news of the gospel is this. You have a God who has defeated every foe and he is there with you. So then in light of that, 
I can take confidence and hold claim to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3, 5. I, God, will never leave or forsake you. So that as I'm struggling like, God, how long am I going to go through this problem? I'm reminded that God will never leave me. God will never forsake me. So that no matter how difficult this trial or this problem may be, He is there with me. And that's enough. Though I lose everything in life, Jesus is there with me and He is sufficient. You can bank on that. We may taste the bitterness of the cross, but we will come out singing magnificent songs of resurrection. To resolve the question that we started off with at the beginning of this passage, what do we do with our problems? What do you do with your your marriage difficulties, your child difficulties, these things that we keep bringing up here? What do we do with them? And I said this, The answer to your problems is not for them to go away. The answer to your problems is a person. And his name is Jesus. In this passage, we hear the whole story of the Bible tied together. We're created in God's fellowship. Sin has separated us. That's where the anguish comes in at the beginning. But it's through our death and through the death of the one who will be crushed for our iniquities that we are brought back into fellowship and experience new life. And that's why we sing songs of praise. I want to leave you with four quick points on how we can fight these trials. I don't want to leave you without any application. These will be real quick. Go through these quickly. So what happens and what do we do when we feel like our problems are too big? Point one, David shows and models for us to pray. That's when God delivers David. That's when God delivers the Egyptians, or the Israelites. I've said that twice now. (laughs) Delivers the Israelites. It's when they cry out to God in the midst of their pain. Next, rest upon the promises and the word of God. Isn't that what Jacob, or David does here? He's reminded, God, you've done this with Abraham. You've done this with, with Jacob. You've done this with the people of Israel. You are the great Redeemer. Redeem me again. Rest on that. Three, remind yourself that your identity is in Christ and not your circumstances. Though the world fall apart, if you are in Christ, he is enough. He is all satisfying when all the broken cisterns around us fall apart. He is enough. And finally, I think Paul models for us the importance of Christian community. We need to be around the saints of old. We need to be around brothers and sisters in Christ because when I struggle, you struggle. The Psalms were sung in a congregation they then take on David's problems. You then take on my problems. That's how we get through these. Maybe today you have not known or you do not know 
This Lord that we're talking about who is the great redeemer who brings us back into fellowship and saves us from these difficulties. If that is you today, Scripture tells us that we are to repent of our sins and look to him in faith. That's how the fellowship is restored. My sinfulness is exchanged for his righteousness. It's what Dionysius, early church father, called the sweet or the great exchange. Turn from your sins and look to him in faith. Because he is better than whatever trials you may be going through. And though the world may fall apart, Jesus is enough. Hold on to that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thanks for allowing us this time just to dive into your word and see how Psalm 22 leads us to rest in the finished work of what your son has done for us on the cross. Help us treasure you above all things. Help us in the midst of war around the world to find our hope, not in the cessation of war, but in the God who rules over all. We love you in Christ's name we pray. Amen.